connections across Scripture. So let's move into the sermon this morning, which is titled Jesus in the Temple. And this morning, in this sermon, we're going to be looking at the only passage in all of Scripture that says anything about the childhood of Jesus. The other Gospels don't say anything about the life of Jesus between his birth and the beginning of his public ministry. But Luke records an interesting incident that I think we can draw lots of lessons from. So over the last two weeks, we learned about how Jesus was brought to the temple as an infant in accordance with the requirements of the law. And there was announced by, uh, he was announced by two separate people that had something to say about Jesus. Simeon, who was a devout man who sang what some have called the first Christian hymn, in which he blesses God and calls Jesus your salvation. And then there was Anna, who gave thanks to God and spoke of Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. In our passage this morning, we see Luke transition from that presentation of Jesus at the temple that we looked at for the last two weeks to a brief statement about his parents returning to Nazareth. And then we will move to another time when Jesus was in the temple, this time as a 12-year-old boy. So in this passage, we will have several things to say to our children. So parents, if you're close enough, poke your kids and say, this sermon is for you, listen up. And there will also be some things for the adults to learn as well. So kids, now it's your turn. Poke your parents and tell them this sermon is for you, listen up. And if you're not next to anyone, just poke yourself. Okay, so let us look to the text and then see what we can learn from it. We'll read it through all the way, and then we'll go back through step by step, as we like to do. Starting in verse 39 of Luke chapter 2. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard them were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In some of your Bibles, verses 39 and 40 will be on their own as they are in mine, and that's because they kind of fall between a longer narrative from verses 22 to 38. That was the temple I mentioned a moment ago when Simeon and Anna saw them at the temple. 
And then there's 41 to 52, which talk about this temple incident. So 39 and 40 are kind of just kind of stuck on their own. Um, but I do want to make some note of it. Um, and then we'll focus more on Jesus at the temple as a boy. In verse 39, it says, When they had performed everything according to their law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So they performed everything according to the law. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, and I'm not going to recap all of that. Leviticus chapter 12 uh, is the reference we looked at that lays out for Jewish parents uh, all the things they needed to do for purification following a birth, as well as the sacrifice to be made. And Mary and Joseph did everything just as they were supposed to do. They returned then to their own town of Galilee. Now, Matthew records something a little bit extra, which Luke does not record. Matthew records the visit of the wise men after this in Bethlehem, and also he records the flight to Egypt where they were trying to escape Herod's fury because he found out that the king was born, the king of the Jews was born, so he had all the uh, baby boys in that area killed, so they escaped to, to Egypt, but Luke leaves that part out. We don't know why he skips over this. We may assume he had his own purpose in mind for this narrative, and it wasn't part of what he was looking to report. But ultimately, whatever Luke wrote was for God's purpose. So all scripture is breathed out by God, and so we can trust that in this narrative, the return to Bethlehem and the flight to Egypt were not a necessary component, at least here, for what God wanted us to focus on in this passage. And so we must be satisfied with that. Um, if you want to know more about that, you can go and look, uh, read Matthew's gospel for that. Uh, verse 40, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This echoes what Luke wrote about John the Baptist in his birth narrative. Back in verse 80 of chapter 1, he wrote something very similar about John. He said the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The first phrase in both of these verses is identical, not only in the English, but in the Greek as well. And the child grew and became strong. John was noted for being strong in spirit, but Jesus was noted for being filled with wisdom. That doesn't mean Jesus didn't have the spirit. It didn't mean that John had no wisdom. It just means that was what the major thing uh, of focus was for Luke. The favor of God was upon him. That is, God's grace or God's goodwill or kindness or a special manifestation of the divine person. So he was filled with or he was complete with God's favor. Verses 42, or 41 and 42 then, now we move into this section about uh, this Passover event that they went to. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. The Passover was one of three annual feasts that required the men of Israel to participate and go up to Jerusalem. The women were not required to attend, but some did. Um, the, the reason was usually a practical one. Uh, women often had children and they needed to care for their children and so were not expected to make that um, trip. But some did and Mary and Joseph 
clearly made this an annual event, and not only did they go, but they brought their family, and they traveled with others. Now, when boys turned 13, they would officially become a son of the commandments. You may have heard of a bar mitzvah. This is when uh, Jewish boys turn 13. They become a son of the commandments. And then they also become full uh, participants at the synagogue. But in the case of the Passover, it was encouraged to bring them one or two years before they would turn 13 so that when they turned 13, they would have an idea of what to expect and what would happen there. Uh, It would be a little bit like when I wasn't old enough to go deer hunting, but my dad would take me along and I would walk along, but I wasn't allowed to hunt yet. That's something like that, okay? So Jesus then, as a 12-year-old, most likely had accompanied Joseph in order to observe the sacrifice. And this would be an extremely exciting thing for any boy. Over 200,000 pilgrims would be in Jerusalem for the festival. And it wasn't that big of a city back then. So 200,000 people all in a relatively small place would be some excitement from the crowds alone. And then so many sacrifices were made that instead of the normal division of priests being on duty that day, which would be one division, on Passover there would be 24 divisions of priests because they had so many sacrifices that they would do for the people. And the people of Israel would take the leaven that was in their houses, they would gather it together in each home, and then they would ceremonially burn the leaven. Then they would begin the slaughtering of the Passover lambs. And at 3 o'clock, the sacrifice would begin. Joseph likely brought Jesus with to the temple to observe the sacrifice. So he would have heard the ram's horn blown. He would have watched Joseph slaughter the lamb for their family. The priests would catch the blood in basins and douse it against the base of the altar. And while all of this was happening, the Levites would sing what are called the Halal Psalms which are the Psalms, if you're taking notes, 113 through 118. And if you have time later today, I encourage you to go read these. And in context of, see, of what Jesus saw and who he would be, become and what he would do, if you can read those and not weep, I, I'd be surprised. I read them last night and I was in tears at the beauty of what God has done for us. Uh, but they would, re- they would sing those Psalms at the same time as this sacrifice was being made. So see if you're not moved when you read them and you think with these beautiful songs being sung at the same time, lambs being slaughtered. What a combination of great joy and yet the ugliness of seeing the innocent lambs slaughtered for the sins of the people. And Jesus, who would not many years later become our Passover lamb, how he must have thrilled as a boy to be part of this. This combination of the soberness of the sacrifice along with the joy of being saved by the Almighty is similar to what we celebrate when we take communion together. We soberly consider the sacrifice, the blood of Jesus, and at the same time we rejoice with gladness because that blood brought us back into relationship with our Heavenly Father. We do not know exactly what at this point Jesus understood about his role in the salvation of the world, 
It is part of the mystery of God that Jesus, who was fully man and fully God, yet willingly had submitted to knowing only what the Father had revealed to him up to that point. Later on, John the Baptist referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God. In John 1.29, John the next day saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul would then later say in 1 Corinthians 5.7 that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He said, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And in Hebrews, we see that Jesus was sacrificed once for all. Hebrews 9.12-14, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? to serve the living God. Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, witnessed the Passover sacrifice that he himself would one day fulfill. And his parents stayed for the entire week of the feast. We see that when the feast was ended, so, so to just give a little explanation of that, some families would just go up for the required couple days and some families stayed and made a week of it. It, it, it seems that uh, Jesus' family would stay for the whole time. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So it was common for families to travel with other extended family or even neighbors from the same village. It was probably a very large group, so we don't need to be too hard on Mary and Joseph here. I've heard stories of children being left at rest stops on family trips or even left at church. If a family in a minivan can leave a kid behind by accident, certainly a family that's part of a large group can have this happen. And so you can imagine Mary coming to the realization that he wasn't there. And perhaps like me, you're reminded of a certain movie about a boy left alone. Uh, We can sympathize with Mary in the sense of dread and panic she must have felt once she realized he's not there. He's not with the family. Where is he? And perhaps she was remembering that 12 years prior to this, Herod had killed many babies in order to try to kill this boy. Imagine how she must have felt. They finally find him at the temple then in verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Sometimes I write down questions for myself that I want to try and answer as I study the passage. I wrote down a whole bunch of questions on this uh, passage. I'm not going to share all of them with you, but there was a couple I will share with you. One question I wrote was, were were 12-year-olds typically allowed to sit among the teachers? 
And the other question I asked myself, which is a more practical one, where did he sleep and how did he eat without his family uh, for those three days? Now, as far as where he slept and ate, we can only guess because Scripture doesn't tell us that. But being an extraordinary boy, uh, I'm sure he would not have had trouble finding food and a place to rest, possibly at wherever his family had been staying uh, when they were there. But we just don't know. But what about the teachers? Were 12-year-old boys typically allowed to sit with the teachers? The answer to that seems to be no, that typically 12-year-old boys would not be allowed to sit with the teachers. Only after they were 13. Remember, I talked about that a moment ago. If they were allowed in, they would have to sit at the feet of the teachers, not as equals. But Luke writes that Jesus was sitting among the teachers. He was listening and asking questions. This is sort of the so-called Socratic method of learning that was much used in that time. Good teachers are not afraid to be challenged by students who push back and ask for more knowledge or understanding. So Jesus would listen and ask questions. Now this is a lesson for children and adults alike. All of us need to be willing to listen carefully to those who care enough to teach us, and we must also sometimes ask questions for clarification so that what the teacher is trying to teach will make more sense to us. Adults, likewise, should not be afraid to be challenged by children when they question things. A lot of children have said, I wandered away because whenever I had this question about the church, my parents just said, it's in the Bible, don't worry about it. It's worth taking time. And if you don't know the answer, do an investigation so you can answer the question that your child has. If we want children to embrace the faith, we must be willing to allow them to challenge it to an extent. We're not saying they should be blasphemous, nothing like that. I'm not talking either about willful defiance. I'm talking about genuine curiosity. I've noticed, though, that many people, when challenged to explain some facet of their faith, rather than seeing it as a growth and learning opportunity for all involved, react almost as if they're afraid of losing their own faith because they can't answer the question. And this is why it is important for all believers to make a lifelong pursuit of understanding Scripture better. We had a great discussion of that this morning in D6. Which, by the way, if you're not going to D6, you're invited to join us every Sunday at 9.15. It's a wonderful opportunity to grow. When you feel very confident in your faith, you will be less rattled when you're challenged. People who blow up when someone challenges their perspective often are very insecure in their position. And they fear even thinking critically about what they know. If you study Scripture and learn it, you will not, only, uh, you will not be so upset when someone disagrees or questions you on certain topics. And if you want to know a sign of someone who's very confident in their beliefs, observe them when they are challenged or questioned. They remain very calm. When it comes to Scripture, God will defend it. And you can state the truth. But in the end, his word is not vindicated by how angrily you defend it. He is the author of truth. And so staying calm and and just presenting it sometimes is the best approach. So Jesus was clearly not the average 12-year-old boy. 
these teachers allowed him to sit among them. And then in verse 47, we see that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. They saw something in this boy that was quite extraordinary. They did not recognize him as Christ or Messiah, but at the very least, they must have considered him to be a genius or a prodigy or something. All who heard him were amazed. All. Not one exception to the rule. Everyone who heard him was amazed. I did a word study on this word all, and you know what it means? All. Everyone who heard him was amazed, greatly astonished, confused, astounded. This included his own parents. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Remember that Mary at this point has been looking all over for Jesus. Apparently, it was not right away that it occurred to her to look in the temple. But as we often say, Mary may have said of him, he was in the last place I looked. Thanks, Leland. One of you chuckled. That's it. Okay. (laughs) Don't we do that when we've lost something? It was in the last place I looked. Okay. Now, we may well consider where we look for Jesus. Do we look where he's most likely to be found? Who is Jesus but the Word made flesh? You can find him in God's Word. This is your best source to learn about Jesus. Don't go looking for him in a politician who thinks like you or in a hobby you like. Look to Scripture to know Jesus. He's in every part of Scripture. Jesus himself said, Moses wrote about me. All of Scripture points to Jesus. Mary had looked all over for him, but now she's found him, and now she lays on him an accusation. And we can understand that she was upset. She was searching for him in great distress. Some have said that based on this response of Mary, that Jesus must have sinned. Yet all of the New Testament falls apart. All of our theology of salvation falls apart if he was not sinless. So no, he did not sin. But this shows us that even when we are not sinning, we may offend others by our behavior or hurt others by our behavior, or they feel hurt anyway, or we may inconvenience others when we do what the Lord has asked of us. Verse 49, he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? This question shows genuine surprise from Jesus. He certainly did not intend to hurt Mary's feelings, but clearly she did not understand everything. And Jesus points out that his father's house is the proper place for him to be. Matthew Henry said something along the lines of, would that we would have children wanting that, to be in the house of the Lord. Verse 50, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. They didn't understand. Verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So just as we may be sure that Jesus was not sinful, either in his attitude or in his action, Luke records that he was submissive. He says it immediately after. He wants everyone to know 
this boy was submissive. He was without sin. He submitted not only to the Father God, but he submitted for a time to his earthly parents. In Philippians 2, we see, starting in verse 6, about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, beginning with his parents, but then even to the point of death, even death on the cross. Even though he was perfect, he was learning obedience throughout his life. He voluntarily submitted to God, the Father. He voluntarily submitted to Mary and Joseph as his parents. Can you imagine, by the way, being one of his brothers or sisters? And yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters. It's in Scripture. Can you imagine? That's your brother? Every time you miss, why can't you be more like Jesus? (laughs) And yet, can the world say to the church, why can't you be more like Jesus? We are brothers and sisters with Jesus, according to Scripture. He's the firstborn, right? Nobody said amen there. Okay, that was a challenging one. All right, and then in verse 52, as we close out this passage, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Well, the question may be asked then, how does a perfect person increase in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Part of the mystery I mentioned earlier is that God, uh, Jesus was fully God, fully human, and yet he went through the process of growing up as a human. And so he learned and increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Which brings us to another consideration. If even a sinless person can increase in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men, how much more potential do we have for growth? Right? If he was perfect and he could grow, how much more can we imperfect people grow? With his help, the Holy Spirit whom he sent to empower us to live this life he's called us to, his word that teaches us how to do it, and his guidance through our lives. And so as I get close to wrapping up here, and this will be a little bit of a shorter message this morning, uh, just a few more highlights or points from this passage. The first one I think that's really good to note, and we talked about in a couple weeks ago as well, that the parents set an example of obedience. Mary and Joseph, uh, clearly Luke writes twice that they did all that the law commanded them. And so they, they did everything the right way. And it wasn't just to please God, although it was, but it was also to provide an example. Any time we do obey God, we're also providing an example for those who are watching. So they set an example of obedience. And actually, they set an example above and beyond. I mentioned how the women were not required to go, but Mary went along to the Passover, and they brought the family with. And so they went above and beyond. It wasn't easy to travel in those days. There was no Holiday Inn Express, so people could say, 
Um, no, I'm not a rabbi, but I did say at a Holiday Inn Express last night. They, they didn't have that. They were traveling in groups of people, partly because it was a little bit easier to do it that way. You shared a lot of the burden. Uh, you shared safety and stuff like that. But still, it was a difficult journey, and this family went above and beyond and had a habit of going up to the Passover. The next lesson I thought we could maybe learn from this is that Jesus can be lost to us in the midst of our busyness. Jesus can be lost to us in the midst of our busyness. You can give a, we could give a lot of uh, grace to Mary and Joseph. This, they had a big family. They had a, a big extended family with them. Um, it, it's kind of like uh, I'm sure our school teachers can attest to when you're on a field trip and you're trying to make sure, well, there's supposed to be 52 kids on the bus and there's 51. Well, now where's that last kid? And you're looking all over and he's in the bathroom or he's at the vending machines or who knows where, or he's hiding behind a, another seat, right? No, kids don't do that, but some do. I probably would have. Anyway, so in the busyness of life, though, they lost Jesus, they lost track of him, at least. He wasn't lost. But how much easier is it us, for us in our busyness of life to lose track of where Jesus is at? And how much we need him, yet in our busyness we forget all about him. How many times in life we get a three days journey or longer away before we realize, wait, where's Jesus well, he never leaves us or forsakes us, but we certainly leave and forsake him often again and again. So, so Jesus can be lost to us in the midst of our busyness. That means we have to think about how we can avoid losing him. Not salvation, by the way. I'm not talking about you lose your salvation. I'm saying the, you're thinking of him and letting him guide your life. Uh, if you're truly saved, the Holy Spirit has sealed you in Christ, so I want to be careful I'm not saying that. But at times, we do stray away. We do go far off the track, and, and we need to be brought back to Jesus. A next thought I had was that Jesus is able to astonish and amaze the world with his wisdom. He was already doing it as a 12-year-old boy, and you see throughout the Gospels when all these people tried to trick him and, oh, I'm going to catch him. I finally got the perfect question for him. Are you going to, should we render to God or render to Caesar? You know, and, and uh, you know, he was always able to astonish people, amaze them with his wisdom. And even at age 12, that was already being demonstrated. And Jesus ought to continue to amaze us too as we look at his word and it open it up to us and as we grow in it and as we grow in understanding how all of the word of God fits together, the more and more he continues to amaze us and astonish us. But mostly he astonishes us with the love that he had for us the graciousness and mercy that he's given to those who he's saved. Another point that I noted was that Jesus was surprised that they did not know he would be in the temple. What? You didn't know I'd be here? Where else would I be? I'd be here in my father's house. And as we consider Jesus as our number one example, um, adults and children, by the way, uh, would people looking for us be surprised to find us here? I hope not. I hope that we would have our faith so know well, known 
to the world that when people say, where is so-and-so at? Oh, it's Sunday morning. I know where they're at. They're at Oasis Church or whatever, whatever church you go to. And we ought to be known for where we're at. Uh, we ought to be seeking to be in the temple. And that's not, not just physically in this building. This is a daily activity of framing our lives in the sense that we want to be near God at all times. And so we make the habit of reading his Bible. We make a habit of asking for his help throughout the day and praying to him. And we make a habit of sharing his grace and mercy with others. So I'm about to wrap up, and, and then we'll have some we'll do here at the end. But a um, couple questions to think about. Are we looking for Jesus? Yes. That's good. All right. It's so good to have all these kids here. I love it. We are looking for Jesus, or we should be looking for Jesus. And then the question along with that is, where are we looking for him? Everywhere. All right. So as I close this up, I want you to consider that in the passage we just read, we find the very first recorded words of Jesus in Scripture in verse 49. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my Father's house? And then let us consider the final words of Jesus as recorded in Scripture. Right near the end on the last page, he says, Surely I'm coming soon. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my Father's house? And then the final words recorded from Jesus in Scripture, Surely I am coming soon. So I challenge you, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we continue to look for Jesus all the time. But we know where to find him, and it's in his word. And it's in the lives of fellow believers, and it's in the fellowship of other believers, and it's in prayer, and it's in the joy that he gives us because he's redeemed us and set us free from our sin and promised us eternal life. And that's why Christians ought to be markedly different than those around them in the world. I'm going to close with a prayer here. Then Brandon and the team are going to lead us in one song. And 